0: Welcome, and thank you for joining me for Ghosts of Arlington, Episode 3, The First Burials at Arlington, An Act of Necessity and Vengeance. I have a personal goal to visit the grave of each individual I highlight on this podcast. Take a photo or two of their headstone and post those pictures, and any additional pictures or information I find relevant to the week's discussion, online at www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com, which I invite you to visit. The website also lists ways to interact with me online or via email if you feel so inclined. Last week, we covered the unimaginably high number of Civil War casualties suddenly requiring burial in and around Washington, D.C. As the war entered its third year, cemeteries in the capital were filled well beyond capacity. As the federal government looked for new cemetery locations, a brigadier general in the Union Army took it upon himself to begin burials at the recently acquired Arlington property. He did this a month before the site was officially declared a national cemetery. These early burials were an act of improvisation by the general, born of necessity, and more than a little touch of vengeance. While some of the early history of Arlington as a cemetery is clouded by the confusion of war and the passage of time, many of the cemetery's firsts are well known. The first soldier laid to rest on the Lee Estate was Private William Henry Chrisman of the 67th Pennsylvania Infantry, who was interred on May 13, 1864. Private Chrisman was born in 1844, and on the eve of the Civil War, he was living with his family in Pennsylvania. He was the second oldest of seven children, ranging in age from 18 to one year old. William's father Jonas supported the family as a wagon driver for a successful local farmer. As with many others, the Civil War changed the Chrismen's lives forever. Two months after the outbreak of the war, William's older brother Barnabas enlisted and served for just over a year before being killed in action on June 30, 1862, in Virginia at the Battle of Glendale. Barnabas was 20 years old, and one of 935 men killed that day. Barnabas' death devastated the Chrisman family. Jonas was particularly affected by the loss of his eldest child and soon suffered from various illnesses. Due to his father's failing health, William took over the responsibilities of the Crisman household and, as the war continued, William decided that he too would enlist in the Federal Army as a way to financially support his family. He mustered into the Pennsylvania Reserve Infantry on March 25, 1864. William's service record indicates that he received a $300 enlistment bonus, with $60 being paid in advance and the remaining $240 being paid in allotments over his three-year enlistment. He also received an advanced month's pay of $13.41. According to pension records, William sent his bonus and advance pay to his parents. Less than a month later, he sent an additional thirty-five dollars home and indicated that he wanted his parents to use the funds to buy land for a family farm. I've not found any pictures of Private William Henry Chrisman, but his enlistment papers describe him as having gray eyes, sandy hair, and a florid complexion. He stood five feet seven and one-half inches tall and had a scar on the left side of his neck. After spending time training at Camp Karmick Woods in Philadelphia. Chrisman and his unit were ordered to Washington, D.C., and continued on by transport barge to Belle Plain, Virginia. One week later, Chrisman was in Culpeper County, Virginia, a region experiencing fierce fighting. As Private Chrisman arrived in Culpeper, he contracted measles. Over the following week, his condition worsened, and on May 1st, he was admitted to Lincoln General Hospital. Located on Capitol Hill in Washington, this 2,575 bed military hospital was specifically built for the Civil War and demolished a short time after the war ended. Lincoln General was a perfect example of the poor sanitary conditions of 19th century wartime hospitals. While 79 soldiers from Christman's regiment were killed in battle during the course of the war, 153 lost their lives to disease. Private Chrisman was part of the latter group. He succumbed to his illness in the hospital on May 11, 1864. Chrisman fought his own private battle in the hospital for 11 days, subject to the atrocious medical conditions of the time. At the time of his death, William was in possession of one blouse, one pair of pants, and one hat, all of which were sent home to his father, now grieving the loss of a second son. As with his older brother, Chrisman was just 20 years old when he died. Private William Henry Chrisman was buried in what is now Section 27 of Arlington National Cemetery on May 13, 1864. The site is located about half a mile southeast of Arlington House and a few hundred yards from the Potomac River. One other soldier was interred that day, 17-year-old Private William H. McKinney of the 17th Pennsylvania Cavalry. Private McKinney was the first soldier buried at Arlington to have his family present for the funeral. The following day saw the funerals of Private William Reeves of the 76th New York Infantry. Reeves was the first draftee to be interred, and Private William Blatt of the 49th Pennsylvania Infantry, the first battle casualty buried on the grounds. Two days after that, the first two unknown soldiers were interred. Nearly 5,000 unknowns are buried there today. Records show that these first graves were most likely dug by a former slave of the Lee family, John Parks, who became a mainstay at the cemetery as it evolved over the years, digging thousands of graves and performing site maintenance. There are no surviving records of Private Christman's funeral service, but records of the second funeral that day note that Private McKinney was, quote, interred with the usual military honors, end quote. Typical military honors in 1864 involved an army chaplain and possibly a bugler to sound taps, which was a new tradition beginning to take hold at military funerals. I'll return to the first burials in a minute, but speaking of taps, I wanted to take a few moments to talk about the history of that particular bugle call, so pop quiz! Last week I told you to remember the name of the officer who led the first unit across the Potomac River to seize the ports in Alexandria and the heights of Arlington. At the time he was the colonel of the 12th New York Infantry Regiment. So, do you remember his name? If you said Dan Butterfield, congratulations, you get a gold star. During the Pennsylvania campaign of 1862, Butterfield, now a brigadier general and commander of the 3rd Brigade, 5th Corps, grew irritated with the Army's standard lights-out tune known as Scott's Tattoo, named for the former Army Chief Winfield Scott and in use since 1835. Butterfield found the tune to be too harsh, and in his own words, quote, not as smooth, melodious, and musical as it should be, end quote. To that end, he summoned Oliver W. Norton, his 23-year-old bugler, and asked Norton to make changes to the tune while he listened. Openly admitting that he could neither read nor write music, Butterfield made his alterations by ear until it sounded right. In Norton's words, quote, After getting it to Butterfield's satisfaction, he directed me to sound that call for taps thereafter in place of the regulation call. The music was beautiful on that still summer night and was heard far beyond the limits of our brigade. The next day I was visited by several buglers from neighboring brigades asking for copies of the music which I gladly furnished." This 24-note call, officially known as Butterfield's Lullaby, quickly spread throughout the Union Army and crossed enemy lines, entering into the Confederate Mounted Artillery Drill Manual by 1863. The new tune was played at a funeral just a few days later after an unknown Union artilleryman was killed during the Peninsula Campaign. As his comrades buried him and prepared to fire the traditional three-volley salute at the graveside, Artillery Captain John C. Tibdall, a future commandant of West Point, feared that an outbreak of musketry in close proximity to the enemy might trigger more bloodshed. With this in mind, Captain Tidball called for a bugler to play the soothing new lights-out tune, the first recorded instance of taps being played over a soldier's grave. This tradition soon became common practice. Okay, so now that I've digressed, let me try to get back on task. Less than a week after the first private soldiers were buried in the lower cemetery, the first officers were laid to rest in a prominent location close to the Lee Mansion near Mrs. Lee's prized rose garden with a commanding view of the river and the capital. The first officer interred was Captain Albert H. Packard of the 31st Maine Infantry, on May seventeenth, 1864. Packard, who had been, quote, shot in the brain, end quote, during the Battle of the Wilderness, miraculously survived his initial wounding and the journey from the battlefield to Washington's Columbian College Hospital, but died soon after. By the middle of June, Captain Packard had been joined by six other officers. While the need for a new location for burials was clearly laid out in the last episode, I also said there was more than a touch of vengeance in the decision to use Arlington as that cemetery. Brigadier General Montgomery Meigs, the Army Quartermaster General throughout the war, and an ardent patriot of the Union cause, never saw the soldiers and officers who fought for the Confederacy as anything more or less than traitors to America, especially one of his first commanding officers, fellow West Point graduate Robert E. Lee. It is almost certain that he had formed a master plan for Arlington before he sought permission to make it the nation's preeminent military cemetery a plan that would make it impossible for the Lees to return to the plantation after the war. The placement of early officer graves around the garden just a few yards from Lees' home made Arlington House uninhabitable Unless, in Meg's own words, the Lees wanted to live amongst ghosts. Planting prominent Union officers in Mrs. Lees' beloved garden would make it politically difficult to disinter those heroes of the Republic. It is likely that Megs hit upon the Arlington idea and put it into practice only to seek bureaucratic approval after the fact. A practice still in use in today's military. I can't begin to tell you how many times I heard that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission during my time in uniform. Two days after the first burials, Meggs wrote to Secretary of War Stanton to inform him what had been done and ask that 200 acres nearly one-fifth of the plantation be set aside as a national cemetery. Stanton, whose disdain for Lee matched Meg's, endorsed the Quartermaster's recommendation the same day. Stanton signed the historic order in his bold, back-slanting hand and was applauded by Loyalist newspapers for his action. The Washington Morning Chronicle reported, This and the Freedmen's establishment are the righteous uses of the estate of the rebel General Lee. The grounds are undulating, handsomely adorned, and in every aspect admirably fitted for the sacred purpose to which they have been dedicated. The people of the entire nation will one day, not very far distant, heartily thank the initiators of this movement. Next week, we will see that despite Meg's best efforts, the Lee family ultimately launched a successful campaign to have the plantation returned to them. Before we finish today, I have a few personal thoughts about Private William Henry Chrisman, our first honored ghost of Arlington. Chrisman served in the army for just two months and met an ignoble end for an infantry soldier, dying in a sickbed before getting a chance to prove himself in battle. It is because of the specifics of his service, rather than in spite of them, that I believe it was a fitting honor for him to be the first service member interred at Arlington. William was already personally acquainted with the horrors of war, having lost a brother in combat, then he volunteered to take up arms in defense of the nation. His service, as short as it was, was honorable, and he paid for that service with his life. I believe that anyone who dons the uniform of their country's military, especially in a time of war, deserves to be recognized. Usually this recognition goes to the senior ranking officers or those who distinguish themselves above and beyond the call of duty. But let us not forget that the silent professionals deserve recognition too. And as always, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.